Hey everybody, welcome back to No More Silos. My name is Erica and I am excited that you decided to join us again this week. Today we are going to be talking about how we got our Bible. It's an interesting conversation, especially after the bonus episode that we shared earlier this week about how to study your Bible. And it wasn't a full on how to study your Bible and everything you need to know is actually just a short episode about two key elements to fruitful Bible study. One is interpretation, and the other one is taking your cue from the covenant God made with you. Um, I talked about covenants, the difference between the old agreement and the new agreement, the old covenant or Old Testament and the New Testament or new covenant. As Christians, we are uh, under the covenant the new covenant. When we think about Bible study, we think about discipleship. Um, and that's why I think that the logical next step is for us to talk a little bit about how we got the Bible in the first place, because in a discipleship, op, uh, in a discipleship conversation, and also in an apologetic conversation where you're defending the Bible, um, I think there's a few things that are important to know about how we got the Bible in the first place. So things like today's culture wars, uh, the right versus the left, uh, the people who want to give us a holiday for Juneteenth, but we're now also in the same week outlawing critical race theory in the schools. So it's like we can't really talk about how we got Juneteenth in the first place and systemic racism because we're not allowed to talk about systemic racism. So it's it's crazy. It's it's this push and this pull. But the culture wars are not new. In fact, we see this in a number of the letters that uh, Paul wrote. That Jesus talks about it in the Gospels. Uh, we see it in the general letters, the general epistles. That there were false teachers all over the place, all the time, with these alternative agendas that often sounded good, sounded like good doctrine, but really they had these agendas that were focused on cultural traditions, and not just cultural traditions from the standpoint of being Jewish and uh, not seeing Jesus as the Messiah or wanting to uh, uphold Jewish dietary laws for uh, Christians, but also from the pagan standpoint, uh, folks who were coming from uh, worshiping Zeus or Athena or Artemis or any of the the gods in the pantheon of pagan gods. Uh, It was a cultural war, and there were people who really wanted to mismatch their cultural traditions with their following and belief in Jesus. That's a big part of the conversation about how we got our Bible um, in the first place. So we've been talking this season about discipleship And cultural Christianity is often an impediment to that success, about the success of discipleship. People are walking away from faith in Jesus, not even realizing that they were never actually taught anything about him because of the way that the Bible itself even has been presented or not presented at all. I mean, there's lots of Sundays around the country where someone stands with a microphone and says something about the Bible, but they never actually teach from the Bible or don't encourage their parishioners to read the Bible for themselves or give them the tools and resources to be able to be equipped to have these conversations, to grow spiritually. And really, that's what the culture war today is all about. We don't want you to read for yourself. We don't want you to learn for yourself. Therefore, we can tell you anything so that you'll believe it. Trust us, not what is true. 
And, you know, like anything, the Bible as truth has stood up to scrutiny plenty of times. So what we're going to talk about today is really focused on the first part of the history of how we got our Bible. And I think next time we'll get to the rest of the history, because as I was putting my notes together, there was a lot. And I said, you know what? I don't think I can do this in about 30 minutes or so. Um, So I want to make sure that I cover it, but I don't uh, bore us to tears either. I I get a little history nerdy on things, and I love history. So people are walking away from faith in Jesus. They're not even realizing that they've never been taught anything actually about him because of the way the Bible's been presented or not presented. People are not considering Jesus as a way to connect with God, the creator of the universe, because too many folks stop and start with the Bible says, but did you know that the early church didn't even have the Bible? Not the Bible that we have, not the way that we know it today, not a bound collection of 66 books. The Bible was written by over 40 authors over 1,500 years, uh, what we know as the Bible. It's actually a collection of books. It's a collection of books that includes poetry and letters and law texts and wisdom writings and history of the people of ancient Israel. And what's interesting about that is that the early church had... Some of that, they mainly had the Jewish scriptures, but they also had some other stuff, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So the early church didn't actually have a copy of the Bible, not the way that we have it today. Um, They had, generally speaking, they may have had uh, letters from Paul and others. I've read in some sources that scholars believe that Paul's letters, at least, were uh, the ones that people seem to feel were the important ones, were bound together and copied and bound together as their own little uh, book and and passed around to the different churches. Um, but there were the other general letters. Um, and then there were the gospels. And you know, the thing that we mentioned this, oh, gosh, I'm starting to get confused now because I've been recording Bible study teachings for our church uh, while I'm still doing research and recordings for this, uh, for this podcast. But so I don't remember right now where I said it. So let me say it again. There are folks out there who feel like we shouldn't use secular terminology or secular language in the church. And what's funny about that is historically, we've always used secular language in the church because we take words that already exist in language, whatever that language happens to be, and we repurpose them for the church. So uh, the gospels, the word gospel in the original Greek actually was a pagan term that meant good news. And it still means good news. We talk to people about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, in the first century, saying gospel or the word gospel in uh, in Greek, and I'll mess it up, so I'm not going to say it for you. Uh, you can look it up. Uh, was actually something that had to do with the emperor, the cult of the emperor, the emperor worship, because in those times, the emperor was worshipped like a deity, like a god. And so the emperor brought the good news. And so that's what the word gospel originally meant. Of course, we've taken it over, and now the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't really use it outside of that context. We don't hear it outside of that context, except very rarely. 
So the Christians subverted the Roman Empire's pagan religious practices by borrowing a few words here and there to avoid persecution, uh, words that are now synonymous with Christianity. So the early church also had what is known as the Septuagint. Uh, And just like it sounds, it's 70. Um, It's believed that 70, maybe 72 translators or scribes worked on translating the Hebrew text, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament now, into the Greek language. Um, And so the Jewish scriptures in the first century were really, they were really working with something known as the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek language copy of what we call the Old Testament, but what they just called the Jewish Jewish scriptures. So when New Testament writers were talking about scripture, this is what they generally meant. And what's interesting about that is that it was in Greek, which was the lingua franca of the time. Uh, the, The words that the language that people use for commerce and for travel, um, for uh, legal reasons. So all over the Roman Empire, if you functioned in any capacity with the public, you had to use Greek. Uh, The Jewish people still spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, but really they were leaning more on Aramaic. Um, So that's the thing about why it's important to look at how the Bible was formed. Because the early church for the first couple hundred years really didn't have the book or collection of books the way we have them today. They had the Septuagint, which was a Greek copy of the scriptures, and then they had um, the letters and the gospels that were floating around. But But in very short order, and one of the details that's important to remember here is, if you have uh, a living document. In the homeschool world, we call it living documents. Documents where the people that the document is about are still alive. So there's still somebody around to refute or confirm the contents of the document. So for about a good, almost 100 years, you had people around who could confirm what was in the documents floating around. And that was how the Gospels and the letters were able to be uh, considered orthodox pretty quickly within the church. But we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 15 and 16 are typically the verses that people reference when they're talking about the scriptures, talking about the authority of the Bible. It says, yeah, Paul is writing to Timothy here, and he's talking about how Timothy uh, has known from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that's from the New International Version. What's important about that is that Timothy, very likely at this point in history, didn't have First and Second Timothy to read. Paul is referencing the Septuagint. He's referencing that his mother uh, and grandmother, Timothy's mother and grandmother, who were uh, followers of Jesus, very likely also had access to the Jewish scriptures and had been taught them. Because here it says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, the Old Testament points to Jesus. The prophecies, everything that's going on, it all points to Jesus. And because it all points to Jesus, it is helpful in making someone wise and giving them that wisdom that they needed to be able to um, accept Jesus as the Messiah and their Savior. When we talk about how we got the Bible, we've got to remember that it is a, it's not a science book. 
Um, and it's not even a history book. Um, it contains science, it contains history, um, but it doesn't exist to teach us everything about everything. The Bible exists to teach us about God. And the parts of it that are relevant are kind of answered by Paul in his letter to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Again, scriptures, capital S here, he's referencing the Old Testament or what we would call the Old Testament. Most early followers of the way, as Christians were first known, generally might have had a copy of the Psalms, a gospel or two, and scholars believe that what eventually became the canon of Paul's letters, as I mentioned a moment ago, were bound in a volume together, and then maybe one or more um, of another letter, one of the general letters, uh, and a copy of Revelation of of John's uh, vision. And by the Middle Ages, most Christians had a copy of the Psalms and the New Testament, at least in Latin, so only the educated could actually read it. When the first English language Bibles appeared, the guys who translated it were, um, some of them were assassinated because no one in political power ever wants people to have access to God's word. Uh, Again, culture wars, even now. Then the printing press was invented around the same time as the Reformation, and from there, all bets were off as far as access to the Bible because the cost of reproducing or copying Scripture uh, went down tremendously because they were able to mass produce it uh, for that time. So it's 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 a big turning point in Bible study in the history of Bible study. But how did we get the Bible? Um, I love history, and it's. The first few hundred years, like a lot of times people start with the King James Version because it is old. It's it's from uh, 1611. Um, and they get excited about, oh, the history of the Bible, well, the King James Version. And I'm like, mm, we got to go back further than that because there's still 1,500 years that we have to cover. But today we're not going past about 400 AD because by then we've got the Bible. Everything else after that point is really the history of translating the Bible. Early on, uh, the Septuagint, being in Greek, um, was a translation of the Hebrew scriptures uh, to Greek, and so most people understood that. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And then the rest of the New Testament was written in Greek, and that was a language everybody knew. So over the next few hundred years, it wasn't translation really wasn't an issue because the main language that everybody read and spoke was Koine Greek, or at least had it was an accessible language, like English is today around the world. Uh, we can pretty much go anywhere and find somebody who speaks English. This is a good thing, but it's also a bad thing because it makes Americans kind of arrogant and uh, privileged. But anyway, I digress. I love history. I love church history. Um, I love learning church history. To me, it's super fascinating. I actually own a copy of the multi-DVD set of the history of Christianity from the History Channel. Um, I've watched all the documentaries on the Crusades. Um, I've watched the documentaries about the popes, the history of the popes, or the pilgrims in American church history. And I'll put some links to some of my favorite documentaries in the show notes this week. But the most recent one that I really enjoyed was PBS's collaboration with Dr. Henry Louis Gates on the history of the black church that came out earlier this year. And I may have mentioned it before on the podcast. So, and, and I bought the book um, because, of course, they, you know, PBS likes to do the DVDs and you watch it, and then there's the book and you can buy the book. I bought the book. Um, anyway, 
I also have a favorite YouTube channel on church history that I stumbled upon uh, a few years ago when I was looking for more info on the Netflix series about the Borgia Popes. And there's also a good documentary on Netflix about the two popes, uh, about the unique situation the Roman Catholic Church had a few years ago when Pope Benedict stepped down from being pope without dying first, like what is normally done. And uh, anyway, now... I'm not going to recommend the Borgia show on Netflix because it's racy and it's not appropriate. And well, it's ratchet too. But you can make your own viewing choices. What was interesting in learning about the Borgia Popes is that it was a it was a Netflix worthy history. Um, it's not Disney. It's not a fairy tale. And you know what? If you read the Book of Judges, the Bible is not fairy taleish either. Um, there's some really uh, crazy stuff that jumps off actually in the Bible. And that's why it's so interesting to see how it will. Anyway, it's interesting to read. We literally could be here all day talking about the history of the Bible. So let me narrow this down for us a bit. Again, I'm primarily interested in sharing with you the part of the history that most of us don't really know, and that I think will help you in your no more silos journey of removing the barriers to understanding. So today we're going to stop with when the Bible was translated into Latin, and I'll record another episode that moves beyond that point. So starting with the Old Testament, Christians have always embraced the, new, the Jewish scriptures. In fact, many of the New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament a lot, even if their audience was primarily Jewish and thus would have been familiar with them. Otherwise, uh, Gentile audiences got quotes from pagan poets or historians, uh, which actually go over our heads now because we're not familiar with all of them in the 21st century unless you studied Greek philosophy or took a philosophy class and might recognize some of the of the writings. Paul does this a lot. He, he switches back and forth. There's even a verse that he writes about it where he says, I, I want to be all things to all people so that I can share the, the good news about Christ. And that's the Erica translation. But the, the idea is that the Bible authors, the New Testament authors, as they were inspired to write uh, through the Holy Spirit, they quoted from things around them, from literature around them. So if the audience was Jewish, they quoted Jewish scriptures or Jewish stories that people would have been familiar with, um, Jewish literature people would have been familiar with. And same thing if it was Gentile people. Um, Acts 17 is a great example of that. I actually have a whole episode talking about Acts 17 uh, from season one that you can check out. And so the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek around 200 to uh, 250 B.C., before Christ, B.C. In fact, most of the scripture quotes in the New Testament don't quote the Hebrew language, but instead actually the Septuagint, the Greek translation, uh, which is interesting because there's nuances in the way that things were translated. Um Around 1400 uh, to 400 BC, that's when the books of the Hebrew Old Testament were written. Now, most of our time today isn't going to really focus on the Hebrew Old Testament, but I want to cover that because it's part of our Bible today. Um, so, 1400 to 400 BC, you know, and when we go uh, BC, the numbers count backwards uh, to zero. So, those are our numbers um, that we made up uh, from 200. To 250 BC is when the Septuagint, the popular Greek translation of the Old Testament, was produced. And it's called the Septuagint because it's believed that 70 or 72 scholars, uh, Jewish scholars, worked on the translation. And, they, and it, even then, it, they didn't do it all at one time or all overnight. It took years and years for them to put that together. 
Hebrew as a language did not become essential to Bible study scholars until the Renaissance around the 1350s and 1500s. Now, what goes on between 200 BC and the Renaissance? Well, as I said a moment ago, the Greek language, Koine Greek, was the primary language language of commerce in that time period during the Roman Empire, during uh, Alexander the Great's time. That was kind of his legacy. Um, And so what ends up happening is the Hebrew language dies out. And it dies out because the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, The Romans ransack the temple. If you go to Rome today, there's uh, monuments to that. You can see them carrying the menorah from the temple in Jerusalem as part of their, uh, what they captured along with some people, and it was it was pretty bad. And so what ends up happening is all the Jewish people scatter, and they're not able to cohesively function the way they used to, and so eventually their language starts to die out. Uh, because if anybody is operating anywhere in the Roman Empire, they're speaking Greek to function in society, and they would only use Hebrew in um, in their synagogue. But they are—we're not talking about a large number of people um, in comparison to the numbers of people who were in their surrounding regions. So it's interesting to to point that out. In fact, the last great Hebrew scholar was Jerome, and he's famous for translating the Bible into Latin around. 400 AD. So we get from 200 BC in the Septuagint, if you can envision a timeline here. Um, Hebrew has a resurgence in the 1350s to the 1500s during the Renaissance, but the last great scholar who studied Hebrew and made a point of it before the Renaissance um, for almost a thousand years is Jerome, and he does it because he's translating from the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures to Latin. And we used Latin Bibles in the Roman Catholic Church all the way through, what, 1960s? And and in some cases, still services are done in Latin. And so this is pretty significant when you think of how we got the Bible. One of the books that was on my shelf is called Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. And on page 237, he says this. He says, Early Christianity was a very bookish religion that found its identity within literary texts. Christianity was distinguished from the surrounding religions of the Greco-Roman world precisely by its prolific production of literature and its commitment to an authoritative body of scripture as its foundation. So prominent were those scriptural books for Christians that even their pagan critics noted the Christian predilection for writing and using books and thus were forced to reckon with these books in their anti-Christian attacks. So what does that mean? It means that the Christians were well-read. And why were they well-read? This is where Ephesians 4, equipping of the saints, becomes important. If you are thinking about this, how, uh, how, the Bi- how we got the Bible, how the Bible was formed in the context of discipleship, in the context of discipling others, it's important to note that Bible study is a spiritual discipline. And so for believers in Jesus, all the way back to the beginning, we wanted to make sure that we were well-read, not only in our own texts, but also in the texts of others so that we could have that Acts 17 moment, so that like Paul, we could communicate and connect with people where they're at to bring them where we are. And that's so important. That is, that is how we disciple. That is how we connect people with the story of God. 
Now, I'm going to read a, about a page and a half from a book that I uh, mentioned to you, the YouTube channel that I like, uh, that I was checking out a few years ago, and I've pretty much watched every video on there. Uh, Ryan Reeves is a uh, PhD professor at a seminary, um, and he produces these really easy to follow videos, uh, but he's got such a really great calming voice. Uh, but he put out a book a couple of years ago called How We Got Our Bible. And I'll put a link to that for you so that you could purchase it if you want all the details, because obviously I can't cover everything here. But he talks about um, the about Qumran and the Qumran texts, the Torah and law. And what's important for us to understand here is that a lot of times we get we get as believers in our modern sense and our access to the internet and Wikipedia and the History Channel, we get thrown at us lots of historical tidbits. But we get that information sometimes taken out of context or it's put together by someone who's not really a believer. And so their whole goal is just to kind of make it sound um, interesting for somebody to watch. But um, a number of years ago, uh the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and these were scrolls that corroborated, from an archaeological standpoint, a lot of the Jewish texts and Christian texts that had been translated over time that people were starting to call into question. So it's important to, to note that. So I want to share with you just a little bit from, uh, from Ryan Reeves' book, How We Got the Bible. In the end, the best way to understand the Qumran text is to realize how remarkably well the Old Testament has been preserved over the centuries, a fact that speaks to God's preservation of his word, but also to the faithfulness of those who copied it. The Hebrew texts used to translate our modern Old Testament, therefore, are trustworthy. Despite the discoveries at Qumran, the fact that our Old Testament manuscripts are based on medieval copies can provoke questions. Is the Jewish Bible the same as our Christian Old Testament? The answer is yes and no. Yes regarding content, but no regarding form. All of the books of the Jewish Bible are published in modern Protestant Bibles. Their content is the same. If we were to travel back in time, into the time of the Old Testament, we would find that the most significant difference between the Jewish Bible and the modern Old Testament is actually their arrangement. The formation of the Old Testament begins with leaders sent by God to proclaim his word. These were leaders of Israel, especially prophets, who were called and appointed directly by God. The first evidence we have of the writing of the Old Testament is Moses. Through, though Genesis is set before the calling of Moses, Though Genesis is set before the calling of Moses, with the narrative of creation of the creation and the fall, Noah and Abraham's lineage, these stories probably were written or remembered through oral tradition. But with the calling of Moses, God entered into a new relationship with Israel, instructing Moses to write down everything God commanded. The account in Exodus, therefore, forms the crucial moment in the formation of these five books, also known as the Pentateuch, five books. These five books were always arranged in the same order, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. For the Jews, the collection was known as the Torah, or the teaching, an inclusive word that means the entirety of these books, not simply the Ten Commandments or other laws. Moses was the principal author of the Torah, save a few passages such as the recording of his death in Deuteronomy 34. 
Obviously, Moses can't write about his own death. The heart of the Torah is in the story of Exodus and God's covenant with Sinai. In some respects, the Torah was considered the basis for the rest of the Old Testament, though the Jews did not consider the latter books to have less authority or inspiration. Rather, the Torah was the foundation of the covenant God made with Israel. Jewish study of the scriptures always began with the Torah. By the time of the New Testament, the Pharisaical tradition went beyond the text itself and added oral law, a series of 613 rules or applications based on the Torah, some of which we see mentioned in the New Testament since they form the basis of disputes between Christ and the Pharisees, see Matthew chapter 9 verse 14. The Sadducees, by contrast, followed only the Torah, although this does not mean they rejected the rest of the Old Testament, but that they rejected the accompanying oral oral traditions. All Jews looked to the Torah as the first step in their long history as God's people. Therefore, the Pentateuch has always been the first five books of every Bible. And that's from... uh, how we got our Bible. Like I said, I'll put a link to that in the show notes uh, with the page number in case you've got a copy. So you have the Torah, you have the law, you have the extra stuff that Jesus complained about uh, in, that we saw, we see in the Gospels. And so you have the, and, but you also had the books of the prophets and the other writings. And altogether, the Jewish scriptures are known as the Tanakh, uh, which is an acronym um, in, in Hebrew. The main thing I want you to remember is that while as Christians, we read the Jewish Bible in a slightly different order, the archaeology and history back up that they have been well-preserved and accurate considering how old they are and how many times they've been translated. Now, what's interesting from the how we got our Bible standpoint is that in the uh, around 90 AD and again around uh, 118 AD, there was sort of a council, not like a council of Nicaea, but sort of a council that gave final affirmation of the New Testament canon. And really, the reason for this was not to be intentionally decisive about the Jewish canon for uh, for the Christians, but really it takes place in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the end of a temple-focused, sacrifice-focused version of Judaism. So they were regrouping. And as a, uh, as a religion and as an ethnicity, as a people group, they were trying to circle their wagons, you could say, and make sure that they had their literature together. So the 39 books of what we consider the Old Testament were affirmed during that time. Um, Another important note, though, that I want to mention is while the inspired scriptures from God were sacred, so were the cultural and historical heritage literature. Um, So the books that include some of the history post-Malachi, if you're looking in our Bible, or treasured stories uh, that were uh, added to the Septuagint, again, the Greek language translation of the Hebrew scriptures, um, these were also considered just as important to uh, to the Jewish people as the inspired Holy Spirit inspired scriptures from the prophets and the writings and and the uh, the Pentateuch. And this is important for us as Christians because the story about Hanukkah is in that part of the Septuagint. Um, it's in Maccabees, um, and so it is a festival 
that we can't as Christians find in the Bible, except I think in Luke 10, um, (laughs) where Jesus mentions he's going to the temple for this festival, um, because that's what they were doing that day. But it's, we can't find it in the Old Testament. We're like, how come we can't find Hanukkah in the Old Testament? Well, that's why, because it's actually in the Septuagint, the Greek translation. And it's not because it suddenly jumped in there. It's a whole different book that didn't get uh, affirmed as part of what we considered as Christians, the Old Testament. Now, that all overlaps with the beginning of the writing of the New Testament, because around AD 45 through AD 85, you have the books of the Greek New Testament written. They were written in Greek um, initially. Now, when did the New Testament need decide that they needed to establish a canon? Because that's really our point of reference as Christians, our writings to say, okay, why we've got the Jewish scriptures affirmed, we've got the Septuagint, but when were our scriptures affirmed or established as a canon, as, um, as a collection of writings that we consistently wanted to use and believe? Well, it kind of really kicks off with somebody had a heretical version (laughs) of what they were calling the New Testament. Um, And so it kind of was like, okay, we can't have that heretical version, that that off off version that's not true, that includes things that are not true. So we're going to have to sit down and make a a statement and really work at this and, and put something together. And that happened around 140, 150, a guy named Marcion. Um, He had a heretical New Testament. He incites Orthodox Christians to establish a New Testament canon. Prior to the need to establish the canon, there was already a fairly consistent collection of which writings would be on the level of Scripture versus which ones were not. And Christians at this time taught new believers... um, Anyway, again, without a Bible, they taught new believers. How did they do that? They did that. They discipled them with the resources that were available. Um, By the second century, there was one called the Didache, uh, which is basically someone, you know, the first book on discipleship. Uh, But they also had the creeds that we've talked about before in this podcast, uh, where people memorized a a faith statement and uh, affirmed what they believed, and then they were baptized. And so it's important to note that circumcision is the symbol of the covenant in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the symbol is baptism. So when new believers were preparing for baptism, at a minimum, they learned the creed. Uh, So the Apostles' Creed, for example, that's still said in liturgies around the world. As the New Testament was being formed and during that period between the Old and New Testaments, religious leaders were still writing their stories. As the New Testament writers were writing the Gospels and letters that eventually became the canon, there were other books being written that, depending upon who you talk to, were held in high esteem. And we know some of these books now as the Apocrypha. Now, I need to pause a moment here and explain, to because many of us have watched those history documentaries about the lost or hidden books of the Bible or some other salacious titled uh, <laughs> documentary. So here's how Wikipedia defines Apocrypha. Apocrypha in the Greek means the hidden things. These are biblical books received by the early church as part of the Greek version of the Old Testament, but not included in the Hebrew Bible, being excluded by the non-Hellenistic Jews from their canon. And this position or their position in Christian usage has been ambiguous. 
um, which I think is a nice way to put it. Apocrypha, per se, are outside of the Hebrew Bible canon, not considered divinely inspired, but regarded as worthy of study by the faithful. The biblical apocrypha are a set of texts included in the Septuagint and in the Latin Vulgate, actually, but not in the Hebrew Bible. While the Catholic tradition considers seven of these books to be deuterocanonical, Protestants consider 14 intertestamental books as apocrypha. Uh, That means that these are books that are written between the Old and the New Testament. As Protestants, I'm a Protestant, we consider 14 of these books to be eh, extra. Um, But in the Catholic uh, world, they only consider seven of them to be extra. So if you have friends who are Catholic, that's why their Bible has extra books in it. And ours doesn't. Martin Luther, um, father of the Reformation, placed them in a separate section called the Apocrypha, setting the pattern for subsequent versions of 80-book Protestant Bibles that include the Old Testament, Apocrypha, and New Testament. So if you're buying a Bible, you can buy a Bible that includes the Apocrypha. I have at least two Bibles that have um, the Apocrypha included, and they're quite fascinating uh, fascinating reads. Um, so you can read more about this uh in the book, How We Got Our Bible, because I've got that linked in the show notes for today's episode. Um, reading the Protestant version of the Bible, which is the one that I read uh, without the Apocrypha, generally speaking, because it's, I don't consider that the inspired word of God, but I've read it for some of my graduate school related work and for my own edification. And yeah, I've watched all the crazy documentaries too about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the so-called hidden books of the Bible that nobody knows about. But here's what you need to know. As Hebrew became a lost language, early Christians lost a lot of their scriptural and cultural connection to the Jewish Christians. So it became kind of easy to mistake the Apocrypha since it was included in the Septuagint as it was added in some copies as an official part of the Jewish scriptures. And they didn't have the internet either. So you probably, uh, so as you probably know from some of the wacky documentaries, everyone in, um, everyone in the early church didn't always agree on which books were worthy of scripture and which were not. However, scholars today believe that there are four categories to have this analysis, to have this discussion. So um, if you're taking notes or going back and taking notes, here's the four categories. Received books, rejected books, disputed books, and heretical books. Um, And these are listed on page 66 of the book, How We Got Our Bible. Received books are books that were universally accepted by the church. Books that were received. They're universally accepted by the church. In other words, everybody pretty much agreed. We're talking about old and new here, but primarily New Testament at this point. They agreed, yeah, these are our books. Rejected books, however, are books that some felt were canonical, but were later deemed as not to be canonical. And so those are things that in some cases ended up in the Apocrypha, or they got tossed altogether because they just didn't match up with the rest of what was going on. Um, They didn't line up. Then there were disputed books. These were books that some raised doubts about authorship or their usage, but were not disqualified from the canon as they were widely read anyway. So some of the letters, some of Paul's letters, for example, there were so many letters, some of his uh, letters, a couple of them, their scholars uh, believe that the authorship may not have been Paul, but someone who was close to him or one of uh, his disciples, somebody who was uh, was taught by Paul and wrote um, on his behalf. And then the fourth category is heretical books, books that only a few embraced 
that were inconsistent with Orthodox teaching, for example, the Gospel of Thomas. Um, So I've read the Gospel of Thomas, and it's really interesting, but it doesn't match with the other Gospels in the way that, uh, in a way that makes it consistent. And so, um, and it wasn't widely used in the church. And so you have to consider when people are walking these letters around and they're hand delivering them to the different churches and they're teaching and they're making disciples and they've got this creed and this basic statement of faith. And you're talking about documentation that were people who lived through it, who were there as eyewitnesses. Paul talks about them in first Corinthians, hundreds of people who saw Jesus die on the cross and then saw him a few days later alive and well, it's really hard to write a heretical counter story to that when you know somebody who knows somebody who was actually there. So that's how all of that kind of comes together. And it's important to note, uh, to point out that nearly all of the books that we know as the New Testament were generally always accepted by most of the early church for that reason. It was just really, it was hard not to um, not to corroborate in real time. They were just, they just weren't bound together like we have them now. And so the consensus in the early church was that scripture, whether it was the old covenant or the new, was received and not created. They were not under any pressure for a long time to defend or offer an apologetic response to why some books were included and others not. And so that brings us back to our friend Marcion. Marcion, in his heretical New Testament around 140-150 AD, incites Orthodox Christians to say, oh, we need to make a list. (laughs) We need to, as this is spreading and it's continuing to spread, we've got to explain ourselves. Why? Well, it's a really long story, and you can look him up on Google. They tell his story in the book, but just know he wasn't a fan of the Jewish connection um, and thought it was a good idea to just basically include, uh, exclude the Jewish scriptures and the three Jewish-leaning gospels. So he actually only kept Luke's gospel. And so there's more, but I've got to move on because I've been talking for a while now. So the church began to intentionally work on clarifying what was considered Orthodox scriptures. Around uh, 240 AD, Origen, who was an African church father, uh, African um, bishop, uh, North African bishop, uh, mentions the 27 New Testament books by name in one of his writings. Uh, He wrote extensively. He was a theologian. Um, And this whole process over time served to solidify how Christians thought about the authority of Scripture. It's important because AD 240 is almost 100 years after Marcion. So we're talking about Many theologians over time saying, you know, we've got to make sure we kind of get this, get our, get our uh, ducks in a row because obviously everybody who was there has died off now. So around 240, you've got Origen. In one of his writings, he lists the 27 New Testament books by name. As a side note, and I'll put a link to him uh, in the show notes, uh, Origen is considered the most important theologian and biblical scholar of the early Greek church. His greatest works um, include a synopsis of uh of the Old Testament, uh, where he writes uh, six versions of the Old Testament and gives a a synopsis of it. He was born in Egypt to a Christian family. He was well-educated, and he was the first Christian to define and use the word Trinity. He wrote that um, in—actually, I think he might have written it in Latin um, or Greek, but yeah, he wrote— Trinity. That's the first time the word Trinity is used. It's not actually in the Bible. So here we have a couple of hundred years after the resurrection, and finally someone puts into one word what everybody had been talking about for years, but he puts it together. Um, 
And so that's that's origin. Um, and so he's he's responsible for Trinity. He's considered today, along with Athanasius and St. Augustine, one of the African church fathers. And we still follow a lot of their methods for uh, exegeting the text and our understanding of biblical interpretation and theology as uh, foundational to the Western to Western Christian theology. Um, we still follow that today. And a lot of it was built on St. Augustine. And it's why I can emphatically assert that Christianity is not the white man religion. Uh, Not to make this a black or white thing, but these are people who were North Africans. They're people of color. And if you can get past some of the later uh, images that were created of them uh, that make them look like like Santa Claus or something, you can see if you get earlier images uh, where there were uh, images painted of them, then you can see that, hey, these were people of color. Um, This is not a European religion. This is a region, a, a religion of North African and Middle Eastern um, historical, cultural perspective. So no history of any significant book is ever complete without someone along the way deciding it should be burned. So around 300, 306, uh, I believe it's Emperor Diocletian, uh, starts persecuting Christians, and that includes confiscating and destroying the new uh, copies of the New Testament, New Testament scriptures. And around the same time, a guy by the name of Lucian of Antioch, which is in modern day Turkey. Um, He knew Hebrew and he took the time to correct some of the Septuagint translation. And this took him years to do. And so his Greek New Testament uh, copy became the foundation for later Bibles. So later Bible translators used his copy of the Greek New Testament and his copy of the Septuagint. The Septuagint was such a huge project that it took years. I understand why someone, it took more years for someone to come along much later and put together, oh yeah, we need to to make sure we fix some of these translations that a better word could have been used here or there. Around 367 AD, Athanasius uh, wrote a letter on the occasion of Easter, and he listed the complete New Testament canon, all 27 books, in an official capacity for the first time. So the first time we see it written is with Origen. A hundred laters, a hundred years later, Athanasius says, no, this is our definite canon. And the Council of Carthage, Carthage is in Africa too, um, establishes the Orthodox New Testament canon. There was actually, they sat down and they said, okay, boom, this, these are the 27 books of the New Testament. And in 400, Jerome, uh, who understood Hebrew and Greek and also Latin, translates all of it into Latin, the Bible, both Testaments into Latin. And it was known as the Vulgate. Um, and I have to look that up because I, I'm stopping here. I have to look that up. I think Vulgate has to do with how it was uh, physically put together. Um, and it becomes a standard Bible in the medieval church. Uh, Latin by now is becoming, uh, phasing out Greek as the lingua franca, the, the language, main language that people speak in the region. Um, and everybody is speaking for our official business, Latin, uh, and writing in Latin. Um, and so that's a lot, right? So in it, and we're going to stop here with AD 400 with Jerome's translation. I'll have to come back and pick up because really the, the story from there isn't about how we got our Bible and the decision-making process for the New Testament canon. After that, the story is about the translation of the Bible and how that goes. And we'll come back and do that on a later episode. But the early church received nearly all of the books of the canon, all 27 books, with very little dispute or controversy. And 
But you can see why some of these documentaries about the hidden and lost books of the Bible are enticing, especially for those of us who didn't grow up Catholic, and so we're completely unfamiliar with the Apocrypha. Fortunately, the archaeology has backed up the historical record about how the Bible was formed. And so one of the things I want you to take away from today's podcast is about how the Bible was formed. The early church had the clear belief that they received the Holy Scriptures, not that they created the Holy Scriptures. The Bible didn't invent the church. The church received the Bible. They believed without it. They believed before they had it, but with it, now they're able to do better at discipleship. They're able to equip people. We can now know how to live and love like Jesus loved. And I'm thankful for those who had the thought to make the effort to preserve it and translate it along the way so that we could access it today. The Bible is not a book that you read. It's a book that reads you, is what I've heard said um, on several occasions. And so you're encountering God. You're encountering the revelation of God himself. Um, And the purpose of the Bible isn't to tell you everything about everything, but to tell you the things you need to know to live your life the way God intended, to have that live that life abundantly as Jesus talked about. It's instructions for us. It's an operation manual in that sense. And it reveals to us the story of God and how God uh, wants to have a relationship with you and wants to have a relationship with me and how through Jesus Christ, we are reconciled back to God. And that's really what the Bible is all about. And what's awesome about how we got our Bible so that when you are discipling or you're talking to someone who wants to say, oh, but there's books that were taken out and hidden, the people in that real time, they didn't have a big controversy about the books. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't historically, it just wasn't a thing. And uh, so there's a quote here that I have from Tim Keller. It says, truth will always withstand scrutiny. If your truth will not withstand scrutiny, it's not truth. So there's two things that we have to consider as uh, as readers of God's word, as interpreters of God's word, is that we have to consider how we're interpreting, which covenant we're trying to follow, and we have to consider that we are reading a document that is basically falls under ancient literature is remarkable. It's remarkable that here we are in 2021 and the Bible's still relevant. It's remarkable that here we are in 2021 and decisions made uh, almost 2,000 years ago, at the very least over 1,600 years ago, um, have stood the test of time. No one's been able to go back and say, eh, it's not going to work. And so there's a lot that happens in that process of translation. We'll talk about that later. Um, But all of this, I hope, has strengthened your faith. Uh, Remember, the Bible is our resource. It's the inspired word of God. But people believed in Jesus Christ without it. So Thank you for going on this journey with me today to address the silos of historical information on how the Bible was formed. Next time, we'll talk more about the translations because that's an interesting story too. So follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Cultural Christianity. Again, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Send me an email with your comments or questions at podcast at ericasantiago.com. Until next time, have a great rest of your day.